Hey, good evening. You up all night tossing, turning, mind racing, trouble falling asleep? Well, you're in the right place. The Sleep With Me podcast is proud to present Game of Drones, a Game of Thrones podcast that puts you to sleep. We do it with an episode discussion. All you need to do is get in bed, turn out the lights, and press play. We'll do the rest. The podcast is going to create a safe place where you can shut off your brain and your worries and your thinking and your planning and your scheming. You put all that aside and you just got to listen to me talk about the episode, The Watchers on the Wall. It's going to start out like gripping, somewhat interesting. That's what's going to take your mind off of things. But as it goes on, it's going to just be a little bit soothing, a little bit uh, less, you'll be less attached. and You'll be drifting off into dreamland. And then you'll be waking up for work to take your shift on watching the wall, literally or metaphorically or uh, whatever equally you choose. That's what we do here. If this is your first time here, welcome. This is a podcast to help you fall asleep. we got plenty of older episodes, but you can just start listening tonight. You don't have to dig into the back catalog unless you need to or you want to. Uh, this podcast, this episode's about Game of Thrones. If you don't watch Game of Thrones, this should still help you fall asleep. We talk about different stuff. I hope it works for you. If not, we have other episodes on Tuesday and Thursday that have nothing to do with Game of Thrones. You can find us on the web at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com. The drones episodes are at www.sleepwithmepodcast.com slash drones. You can get a hold of me on email, feedback at sleepwithmepodcast.com. You can comment on the website. You can reach me on Twitter at Dearest Scooter. Or we're on Facebook. I've been hearing from people on Facebook too. Sleep With Me Podcast. Please let me know if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc. But I'm glad you're here. And I honestly hope I help you fall asleep tonight. Housekeeping. I want to do some quick housekeeping. I want to thank Lynette. For the nice uh, message she sent me on Facebook. I want to thank everyone that I'm having ongoing interactions with on Facebook and Twitter. I want to point out that Kayla, Kyla, our buddy in Ireland, she's a new blog. It's at mintflowers.wordpress.com. And she says, uh, this is a blog about her life. If you like books, cats, and coffee, then you're in the right place. And check it out because she's been a, a big supporter of the podcast and I really appreciate it. She talks about some books a new app for making Polaroid prints, Printic, and she has pictures of cats. So what could be finer? I want to take the time to thank a sphincter, and I, I don't know if it's, a, I think it's a new sphincter as opposed to the, a sphincter that, um, or a sphincter, a sphincter, right? Which uh, there was one, someone named the sphincter that reviewed us uh, a couple months ago. So I hope this is a new a sphincter. And I love it. I love saying sphincter because you guys, if you're going to give me a review, I'll say it a million times for you. Thank you for your review. And a sphincter says, uh, quote, RW, you nincompoop, which is one of my favorite. Like, honestly, I could listen to RW talk all day, or not talk, but I could listen to RW lecture people and insult them all day long. So, you know, thanks. 
Thanks for the iTunes review. I'm glad you enjoy RW, and I hope you continue listening to the podcast. Thank you. That's it for housekeeping. If you if you heard you know if I didn't mention you, or you've been waiting and you just heard, I apologize. I was this uh, I'm recording this maybe a week and a half or two weeks before it comes out, but uh, you know I'm here for you. I'm not the quickest, brightest stick in the stick business, but uh, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks. All right, well, we're here to talk about The Watchers on the Wall, which I hope is the name of the episode. Season 4, episode 9. The, uh, you know, the almost last episode of the season. Now, let me just take take a second, just in case there's anyone that doesn't watch Game of Thrones who's listening. You've listened to nine episodes of a Game of Thrones, or eight plus this part of a Game of Thrones podcast. Made to help you fall asleep. But this episode has the production value of a movie, an action movie. So it's time to get on, it's time to climb aboard the Game of Thrones train. And maybe it's too late, it's left the station because your DVR is not full or you don't have HBO Go. But you, you know, you can catch it on a DVD or at some point it streams or maybe you can buy it on iTunes or. You know, next season. So, because this episode was off the Meister's, Meister's chain, mother fizzle. Uh, it had, it, it was uh, only set at the wall. And all the action took place there or nearby. And it was awesome. It was like an action movie. I think I just already said that. And then maybe I had a, a little bit of a spell there. But it was great. You had giants. You had arrows. You got sword play, you got hammer play, you have arrow play, you have tons of um, people doing action roles, diving and rolling. Again, another episode where I took notes and watched it, and I was like, oh, what are we going to, you know, this all takes place at the wall. When I sat down, I'm like, this is going to be a tough episode to extract for maximum borification. We're going to frack the boredom out of this. I'm sorry, I'm in a swearing mood, but we're going to frack the boredom out of this shit, out of the wall, the ground beneath the wall. But, but, you know, it ended up not being that much work. There was so much here. So first I'm going to, let's see, we're going to talk about the episode for a minute, and we're going to talk indigenous peoples, which, yeah, if you're you're, uh, prone to knee-jerk reactions and controversy, I'll try not to jerk your knee, but... I could. We're going to ask the question, look into like, is love the death of duty or why, you know, why certain religious people aren't married? We're going to talk, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk some Targaryens, like a little bit of a talking Targaryens. Like, I wish it was a, it would be pretty cool if I had like a set and it was a show. I was like, yeah, it's talking Targaryens. I don't know. I like, I just like saying talking Targaryens. Hey. What are you guys up to today? Yeah, we're just talking Targaryens, man. You want to join us? Whoa, you guys are talking Targaryens. Like all Targaryens? We're talking Targaryens. What do you think that means? It means we're talking Targaryens. Have a seat. You know, who's your favorite Targaryen? So that's what we'll be talking Targaryens, but not quite at that level, but at some level. Go out, drop a little uh, video game uh, story on you from back in the day. 
that this episode reminded me a little bit of. And, uh, you know, if you want to, if you're, a, you know, some sort of, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop a little 2GS on you if you're an old school Apple fanboy. And then most importantly, we're going to cover some facts about the history of archery and arrows, which I mean, whew, you know, there was arrows flying in this episode. And of course, I'll make some, you know, fertile ground for prayers at the end of the episode to the gods old and new. And then the real new gods. But, I mean, that, not the real uh, gods. But we'll get to you. So this is just, I'm just talking to the audience, not the gods right now. You know, the new, new gods. Gods, gods old, gods new. Well, I guess it was the new god. Whoa. Yeah, this is a complicated. Triple, it might be two. So the new god. There's the old gods, the new gods. Then there's the new god, which would be the red woman's god. Right, because he's new to them. But I guess mine would be new and then new in parentheses because they're new, new gods. They're gods that are newer than Ralor in the historical sense, but they're members of the, you know, they hang with the other new gods that are, uh, they hang with the new gods. So it's confusing enough. Uh, you should see it in my head. It looks like a, uh, Conjunction Junction Confunk was that song? Conjunction Junction. There, there was a disaster at Conjunction Junction. And usually that's how it is in my brain. But, you know, this is what you get, you know. So if it helps you fall asleep, if a couple trains got a crash in my brain, what do we, you know? <laughs> I'm speechless by my own confusion. So let's move on to the episode breakdown, shall we? I'm going to run through this quick because I don't know if you were listening last week at the epic episode that took like, I don't, I think we were pushing two hours because I don't want to quite get into the territory of the last episode where we were pushing two hours. Um, So we start out at the top of the wall. Sam and John are talking women. Very nice scene. I love, I mean, you guys know. I guess I haven't given Jon Snow quite the attention he deserves with this, but he would he would be someone I'd like to hang with. And now that Oberyn's gone, he's probably one of the coolest. If not, he might be the coolest person in Westeros now. I don't want to, you know, curse him. And I still have great admiration for when his wolf came and he goes, uh, you know, whatever he said, I can't remember. It was a couple episodes ago in my brain. But he just said that really heartfelt greeting to his wolf at the episode, which I was like, I hope, you know, one day, me, I already said this in the last of that, but one day me and him are best friends, and he's like, ah, come here, you dog, or whatever. Me and, me and Davos roll in there, you know. But he says another great line, I'm not a bleeding poet. And then Sam says, no, you're not. Oh, oh God. Yeah. I love laughing at stuff that's not out of, you know. <laughs> uh, we had Tormund talk about his Sheila, and how sharp her fangs were, and that she knew how to use them. And that's a, a, a Tormund love. I don't even know is that his name Tormund. I hope I'm saying it correctly. I was going to save this for later. He's like a crazed Santa Claus, like a, a lunatic Santa. And in some sense, but he's still kind of, and as like badass as he tries to be, he's still kind of snuggleable. I want to like give him, you know, I want to sit on his lap and tell him what I want for Christmas. But uh, he talks about Sheila, 
So that was another relationship I wanted to give a nod to. Got the maester talking about books and no eyes to read them. It reminds me, I didn't have time to add this, but uh, it just reminded me of a, a really good uh, Twilight Zone with Burgess Meredith. And Burgess Meredith is in more than one good Twilight Zone episode, I believe. I think he's in, maybe I don't want to jump the gun there, but I'm pretty sure he's in two classic uh, Twilight Zone episodes, and one is about books. So why don't you check that out on your spare time, uh, whether you have to wait for the WPIX. Well, now it's not on WPIX, but whatever the site. You know, I love Twilight Zone. You already know that. Gilly gets back from Molestown, so she won the odds. She didn't prove me wrong because there was trouble in Molestown, as I said there would be. But uh, she survived the trouble. I love it when Sam says, I'm a, you know, I'm a man of the night's watch. And he lays a kiss on Gilly. I just wanted to uh, high-five him, I guess. Or pat, I, know, I guess more of pat him on the back, Baratheon style. Give him the old Baratheon back slap that uh, Tywin seems to hate. Uh, yeah, I don't, again, I don't want to pat myself. I guess I should pat myself on the back. I don't want to say, uh, well, let's pat, let's pat John. Let's give Jon Snow a little pat on the back. Because he told them cold rolled steel ain't going to cut it. Giants show up with a couple of mammoths or a mammoth and a couple of giants. Man, I mean, fanboy talking. Those giants and the mammoth were awesome. I mean, kudos to being creative and having your own giants that were just cool as cool as fuck. Sorry, I'm swearing a lot tonight because... You know, there's only one episode left, so I got to get in. So that was cool. Giants, awesome. Cold rolled steel against a a crush, a giant with a hurt spirit. You know, got no chance. Also, a giant was shooting an arrow. That was cool and dangerous and deadly. I liked it. The scene, you know, when the brave young men of the Night's Watch go down to hold the gate against the giant, and they, you know, say the chant. And then right after that scene, that's a jump, unnecessary Jon Snow jump and roll. And he jumps off the elevator and does a right into a barrel roll or, I don't know, somersault roll. Unnecessary, but awesome. But also, like, well, John, man, you could bust out your knee, so you got a battle to fight. Then he had the nice Jon Snow gets anviled. And then that dude, whose name I never caught, the guy that's tall, scary and uh a bit alien like he gets uh uh what do you call it john gets anviled he gets hammered that ice scythe was cool ice anchor scythe i like it when Tormund got captured i like that they you know kept him alive and then he was kind of like a mad wild animal uh but still like i still want to be like hey you think i could get the uh, maiden for christmas what do you think about that you know, could you uh, get some stones for a gray worm and a pillar if he doesn't have it? And then, uh, again, another person whose name I don't know in the that stupid Night's Watch assistant commander who is a jerk too. Uh, or no, not Night's Watch. Yeah, wasn't he in the Kingsguard maybe? Or the Tower? Something. He, he was some... Know it all from King's Landing, King's Guard. I don't know. He's hiding out in the lot larder. Uh, that guy, 
He's going to need some comeuppance. And if, you know, if he doesn't, I'll pick him up on my way in the Roose Bolton fantasy fiction time machine on my way to take care of uh, Mr. Clegane and the Bolton boys. Bolton boys. Maybe the, remember when the, Bake, the Bacon Brothers had a couple albums? Maybe the Bolton boys will come out with it. And they could uh, pick up Michael Bolton. This is stuff I'm thinking about on the fly, folks. This is why you're either asleep or not asleep. But uh, Bolton boys, who would pay for Bolton? You know, let me know. Tweet me, Bolton boys. Who would pay for uh, to go to a Bolton boys tour? You got Roos. Looks like he could sing. I mean, he does. You got Michael Bolton, who he was a pop culture phenomenon at different times for different reasons. He's got to be still around. Probably He's probably in Vegas. And then you got uh, Ramsey, uh, new, the newest Bolton. And, you know, he probably, he could probably sing. I mean, I don't know. I don't know anything about alto and tenor, baritone and um, boss up bass, but Bolton boys, let me know. And, uh, yeah, patent that for me, somebody. I guess Bacon Brothers. I don't know. I love Kevin Bacon, too. So I don't know why Bacon Brothers just makes me laugh. I do know why. Uh, because, well, yeah. It just it just makes me laugh. And Sam says it's a great victory. John tells him to slow his roll, and John's going to sacrifice himself. You know, John's a real hero. I can hear you, fans of love, telling me, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, last episode you were talking love, and you didn't talk about John and agreed. Well, yeah, they weren't in the uh, episode Viper in the Mountain. So we can talk about him now. And they're like your uh, tragic glove tale, folks. I mean, so you don't get much more. I mean, it's not exactly Romeo and Juliet because uh, I don't know. Though she was a great, great character. She had that edge, that anger, that fire. But uh, she fell hard for Jon Snow, as I know women are loath to do. And uh, Jon fell for her. And she taught him the ways of uh, of love for that night in the cave, I guess. And, uh, I mean, Jon Snow was like a, I don't know, one thing I like about uh, Kit Harrington's acting. I feel like I'm saying this right. I hope his last name's Harrington. I spent a lot of time apologizing for getting names wrong on this podcast. But it's like uh, over a couple seasons, he always had this like, this doubt that his face is able to make um, or that his, that his act, I'm not an actor, but I think he, he was expressing some doubt facially or physically or intoning in a way like I'm I, um, doubting the path he was taking and doubting his ability to walk that path. And now similar to his sister or half-sister, I mean, John's been active but now we're seeing him come into some sort of uh, fuller confidence in himself. And uh, very, very, um, he was the leader. And that guy was telling him up on the wall all about what it is to be a leader. And then it's like, nah, you, you know, let me, let me show you how a leader leads by example, by encouraging courage, by seeing the best in men, by letting men know 
there's something greater than them to fight for. You can't have people fighting on shoulds and listens and do it my way. Or maybe you can. I guess they've been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. But So, yeah, I got off track about how badass Jon Snow is. But, yeah, John and Agreed had their own kind of love. Again, the types of love from the last episode. I don't think it fits into the Greek. I mean, me and the Greeks are going to watch this episode, too. So I'll see what Aristotle has to say. Unless, like, when Aristotle knifes me in the back, if that messes up the time-space continuum. But I'll see what Aristotle has to say about it, okay? Like, and we can come up with a better name for John and Agreed. And they're kind of love because it's not agape. It has a lot of arrows. Actually, it is. There's a longing. But it's a it's an even more painful version of Eros than uh, uh, Melisandre and Grey Worm have. It's almost like a uh, yeah, like they have a bigger they uh, they had. I'm sorry to say, spoiler alert, uh, they had a bigger barrier to their love. Now their love is uh, well, if they don't burn the body, you know, he could she could be a zombie wife. But that's pretty weird. But yeah, so I don't know. In summary, sorry, I don't have, I mean, when we do the Love Boat episodes, which I've been thinking about, uh, hopefully I was going to go straight into season one. But maybe we'll do a Love Boat episode after the season ends, which should be after the next episode. And then we'll check in and maybe John and Negrete will take a little ride on the, the Westeros Love Boat, okay? So let's get on to the real boredom, because I'm just going on and on. All right, thanks. All right, so first thing we're going to talk about is indigenous peoples, which surprisingly I got out on the, like on the kind of the second try. First, I'd say that was like a, wasn't my first try saying indigenous, because I went, eh, but it was like a one, wasn't my second try either, you know? So give me some credit. Indigenous peoples. You might either be saying, what is an indigenous person? Or, whoa, you know, I've got some gripe about indigenous people. Or, I am an indigenous person. Well, let's put all this out. Let's let's agree on a definition and the definition we agree on because this is a monarchy, I guess, or a dictatorship. It's a definition I chose, which is from culturalsurvival.org. So, yeah, it's got a a spin, helping culture survive. It's got an agenda. Uh, what, who, who? They ask the question, who are indigenous peoples called tribal peoples, first peoples, native peoples? Indigenous peoples constitute about 5% of the world's population, yet account for 15% of the world's poor. There are approximately 370 million indigenous people in the world, belonging to 5,000 different groups, in 90 countries worldwide, indigenous peoples live in every region of the world, but 70% of them live in Asia. Now, there's no follow-up on that. I don't mean to be criticizing culturalsurvival.org, but it would have been nice to have some kind of footnote. You know, I don't think anyone's listening from there, but thank you for uh, putting the definition there for me. Uh, there's no, according to them, there's no universally accepted definition for indigenous, but there are certain characteristics that tend to be common among indigenous peoples. They tend to have small populations 
relative to the dominant culture of their country. However, in Bolivia and Guatemala, indigenous peoples make up more than half the population. They usually have or had their own language. Today, indigenous peoples speak some 4,000 languages. They have distinct cultural traditions that are still practiced. They have or had their own land and territory, to which they are tied in a myriad of ways. They self-identify as indigenous. Examples of indigenous people include the Inuit of the Arctic, Native Americans, hunter-gatherers in the Amazon, traditional pastoralists in the Maasai, or like the Maasai in East Africa, and tribal peoples in the Philippines. Now, why are we talking about indigenous peoples, you might be asking. I thought this was a Game of Thrones podcast made to bore me to sleep, and um, I find this neither boring nor whatever. The reason is a, a line from a greet, which I'll butcher now. She seemed to make a little stand for the indigenous the indigenous people of the north, saying, like, these dudes put this wall up on our land to keep us out of it or some such thing. That made me think, huh, are the others the indigenous people of the north or the far north of Westeros? I don't know the answer to that. I should have probably looked it up, and I'm now I'm on the spot saying I don't know. But... It, it seemed to agree, agree to be, uh, impo- see, that I got that on the second try. Or maybe I never even got it because I might be pronouncing her name wrong. But she seemed to self-identify as an indigenous person, at least as a person that because of the Night's Watch, because of the wall, was pushed off of her land or can't freely roam because when there's a big wall in your way, you can't really, it's not an open passage. And again, I guess I should. I guess I got to do more research on this wall. I guess this is to keep the others out. Anytime you're calling someone an other, probably not the most. Uh, you know, if you're being called another, yeah, you need to worry about your cultural survival. Head over to culturalsurvival.org. And why? Well, man has a history of uh, not treating indigenous peoples well. Some might even use the word genocide to say how we treat indigenous peoples, and. You know, it's going to stir up a little bit of uh, curiosity, but it, it stirred up some curiosity for me. So let's check out what uh, Wikipedia says about genocide and indigenous peoples. Take it with a grain of salt, but it's dense, so we're just going to peruse it. Genocide of indigenous peoples is the genocidal destruction of indigenous peoples. Whoa, that's a uh, double speak. Understood as ethnic minorities whose territory has been occupied by colonial expansion or the formation of a nation-state by the dominant political group such as a colonial power or a nation-state. Who's right? I mean, come on. Julian Assange cannot be pleased with this uh, poor language usage. Okay, the concept of genocide was formulated by P. Raphael Lemkin, Lemkin, in the uh, mid-20th century, he saw genocide as a two-stage process. First, beginning with the destruction of the indigenous population's way of life. People, like, come in and muck, muck everything up, start putting up walls, in the metaphorical sense, in this, in this piece of fiction. In the second stage, the newcomers impose their way of life on the minority, according to David 
Mayberry Lewis, imperial and colonial forms of genocide are enacted in two main ways, either through the deliberate clearing of territories of their original habitat inhabitants in order to make them exploitable for the purposes of resource extraction or colonial sediments, or through enlisting indigenous people as forced laborers in a colonial or imperialistic projects of resource extraction. This designation of specific events as genocidal is often controversial. Concept of genocide, I always said that. For Lemkin, genocide was broadly defined and included all attempts to destroy a specific ethnic group, whether strictly physical through mass killings or cultural and psychological through oppression and destruction of indigenous ways of life. The UN definition, which is used in international law, is narrower than Lemkin's and states that genocide is any of the following acts committed with an intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, ethnical, racial, or religious group such as killing of members of the group, causing serious bodily harm or mental harm to members of the group. Check. Check for uh, King's Watch. I mean, Night, what is it? Night's Watch? Deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring its by its physical destruction in whole or part. Putting up a wall they can't when there's like monsters on the other side. D. Imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Well, I don't know that much about that. Forcibly transferring children of one group to another group. Let's just touch on a couple um, genocides. Not pretty things, but uh, in the 16th century... The expansion of the European Empire has led to the conquering of the Americas, Africa, Australia, and Asia. This period of expansion resulted in several instances of massacres and genocide. Many indigenous peoples, such as the Yukai, Beothuk, and Palawa, and Herero, were brought, and I apologize to all those cultures. I'm nothing, I mean, I'm a participant, and I mean, it's disrespectful, and I'm sorry. Uh, we're brought to the brink of extinction. In some cases, entire tribes were annihilated. Estimates of the population decline in America from first contact with the Europeans in 1492 until the turn of the 20th century depend on the estimations of the initial pre-contact population. In the early 20th century, scholars estimated low populations for the pre-contact Americas with Alfred Crobert's estimate of as low as 8.4 million in the entire hemisphere. Archaeological findings and better overview of early censuses have contributed to much higher estimates. Dobbins' 1966 estimated a population of 90 to 112 million. It's more than 10 times. Den, Denavan's more conservative estimate was 57.3 million. That's not quite, I mean, that's like six times or something. Russell Thornton arrived at a figure around 70 million. So somewhere between 55 and 112. Depending on the estimate of the initial population, by 1900, the indigenous population can be said to have declined by more than 80%, due mostly to diseases such as smallpox, measles, 
cholera, but also violence and warfare. So what are some other colonizations that ended in some kind of genocide? Portuguese colonial expansion in both Africa and Brazil. You got the Spanish colonization of the Americas. It's estimated during the Spanish conquest of the Americas, 8 million indigenous people died through disease. Acts of brutality in the Caribbean and the systematic annihilation occurring on Caribbean islands prompted Dominican friar Bartholomé de las Casas to write a short account of the destruction of the Indies in 1552. Las Casas wrote that the indigenous populations on the Spanish colony Hispaniola had been reduced from 400,000 to 200 in a few decades. Wow. Russians uh, conquested Siberia. Their population, John F. Richards wrote, their early population exceeded 300,000 persons. But diseases demoralized the indigenous peoples of Siberia. And smallpox, because of its swift spread and high death rates in the 1650s, carried 80% of the Tungus and Yakut populations. We had the uh, Japanese colonization of Hokkaido. That was the uh, Ainu people, A-I-N-U, near the Vietnamese conquest of the Champa in the Central Highlands. We had the British Empire, which we kind of covered. British Empire is accused of several genocides, doctrine, and this is against the British people. This is just history, folks. We're just talking history. Remember it. Learn from it. And maybe maybe we do need to make some right wrongs right even now because we have benefit, those of us that have benefited in some way. But this is, you know, just information to inform your subconscious for future stuff. British um, accuses several genocides. I said the doctrine of terra nullius was used by the British to justify seizures of territories in Australia and Tasmania. The death of 3,000 to 15,000 Aboriginal Tasmanians has been called an act of genocide. Mexico, the Mexican government put a bounty on the Apache. United States colonization, oh boy. Now we're getting into some deep doo-doo here. In the late 16th century, French, England, Spain, and the Netherlands launched a colonization efforts in North America, which is now the United States. The United States has not been legally admonished by the International Community for Genocidal Acts Against its Indigenous Population. But many commentators and academics argue that events such as the Trail of Tears, the Sandy Creek, Ma- Sandy Creek Massacre, the Mendocino War, were genocidal in nature. Some accounts of genocidal massacres, such as Ward Chilchill's claim that the U.S. Army distributed blankets infected with smallpox to the men... Dan Ann's at Fort Clark in 1837 have been shown to be false. There's a lot here, and I'm going to include in the show notes, but it's a sad history. And I think that it is important that art reflects art and us and stuff. Um, so just be aware that all, not all our history is pretty, and we, we have benefited from some wrongs, some of us, not all of us, some of you. We've suffered wrongs. We're not perfect. Doesn't mean we're bad or repulsive or evil. But it is something to be aware of. 
Maybe I'll guide you your actions. Ray Perkins might say, you know, maybe I'll make you do something nice or lose your temper a little bit less. Or maybe the younger listeners or the older listeners or anyone in between. Maybe it will inspire you to uh, go out and right some wrongs. Or, so, um, I, don't, I, I don't know how to end this on indigenous peoples. Just to say, you know, be aware of your history. And if you're not aware of your history, a great might come back and put an arrow through your head. So that's something to me think about. So uh, next, next, next up, we're going to cover... Um, well, it came up as a love, the death of duty. And I'm D-U-T-Y, not D-U, you know, duty. And that made me think a lot about, yeah, well, maybe if you're going to be a member of the Night's Watcher and love uh, hanging out with a bunch of dudes, defending a wall of ice in the middle of nowhere, yeah, you might think, you might consider your, reconsider your options. But the wall's usually like a lot of people's last stop. Not everybody's like got a sense of duty like Jon Snow does. But it also made me think of uh, is is love the death of duty as raised uh, in a Roman Catholic. And I don't get into religion or faith here too much, but, you know, I'm not necessarily, it's not where I'm at as an adult, but that's the culture I was raised in. And one of the things that was always confusing was uh, priests and nuns couldn't get married. And I remember what come up, and you could never, I never got an answer as a kid. I mean, a kid, no answer is ever good enough for a kid anyway, because you say, why? Well, because that's what God wants. Why? Well, that's what God said. Why? I mean, that was, that's the way I like, and then the teacher would be like, you know, go sit in the corner of the room or whatever. Now who's doing a boring podcast, sister? Okay. Uh, but, uh, so there's always something I was like, I don't get it. Like, uh, and then you get a little bit older and, and you say, well, geez, I don't know. It still doesn't make sense. And I'm not, this isn't a judgment of religious doctrine, just something I have never been able to grasp. And so then I was like, oh, this reminds me, this is whole, is that, is love at the death of duty for, um, and I'm not sure if Roman Catholicism it's the only religion that does it. You know, there's a lot of priests that get cloistered or abbots or monks or stuff. But, I, you know, I've tried to do some research. And I was tempted to go into this deep Wikipedia article similar to the indigenous peoples that just goes on and on. And just read from it and bore the life out of you. But then on one of my Google searches, I found this really heartfelt answer that touched me in some way. I'm not even kidding. And I want to read that to you because I think it's a, I find it to be a perfectly good answer that I was searching for as a child. And now as an adult, I kind of got it. Uh, so I'll read it to you. It's called uh, Why Don't Catholic, Catholic Priests get, get Married? And this is from a blog, uh, Father Mike's Daily Thoughts.blogspot.com. So this is from Father Mike. Uh, just let me read his uh, blurb Father Mike Manning, SVD. Is host of Power of Love, a weekly television show on TBN. This blog is a question, a compilation of the questions from all, that Catholics from all like walks of life have asked them. Now, I don't know anything about Father Mike Manning, so I'm hoping 
He seems like, in this answer, a respectable guy and well thought out and heartfelt. So hopefully he's, I don't think he's a purveyor of hate or ignorance, but I can't be positive, so I'm not endorsing him. Uh, but let's read what he because it's really good. Great question, why don't Catholic priests get married? As a priest, I must admit I wrestle with that question a lot. On one level, I deeply enjoy being a priest. I love the chance to talk about God. I love the study of the scripture. I have to do and prepare for sermons and talks. I love celebrating Mass. I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. I'm in touch with the sacred, the most sacred things in life. I also love the chance to minister to people during important times in their lives. Marriage, sickness, fear, sin, joy, and death. On one level, being not married frees me to be able to work wholeheartedly and single-mindedly in the service of God's people. I can imagine that my time would be practically drawn away from me to my wife or children or the people of my parish. Celibacy allows me to concentrate on the needs of people who I'm called to minister. On another level, there's a definite loneliness in my life without a wife and children. At times I feel this lacking in my life in a strong way. I'm a member of a religious community, Divine Word Ministries. We live in a community. There are about 12 of us living here. The fellowship is vitally important for me and helps me to overcome some of this loneliness. Still, especially at times of failure and misunderstanding, it's difficult not to have a female intimate. At times I feel hesitant to share with my female friends because I don't want to compromise a sexual boundary I feel I need to maintain. So why don't Catholic priests have the option of marry? Well, the truth is that there's, this is only a changeable law. That restricts a married married clergy. It could change. As a matter of fact, Eastern Rite Catholic priests are married, and some former Anglican priests who became Catholics are married. So why am I not married? Two reasons stand out. One, I experience a call from God to this way of life. The call is real but hard to explain. When I was 28, it took a vow to live the life of a celibate. Second reason I want to imitate Jesus, imitate Jesus, he wasn't married. His life as a celibate was an urgent rush to be concerned with calling people to the imminence of coming of God's kingdom. This urgency of Jesus did not leave time for the care work of caring for wife and children. We know after two centuries, the urgency of Jesus doesn't seem to be so urgent. Still, in a way that doesn't make a lot of logical sense, our love for God calls us to that urgency to work at a frenetic pace to usher in the kingdom of God using our talents and love. Now, I'm not asking anybody to agree with everything that Father Mike says, or I'm not trying to convert you. I don't practice Roman Catholicism or Catholicism, but I don't got anything, well, other than some painful memories, I don't got anything against it. But I just thought it was really, and I'll put the, it's just a really honest and heartfelt answer. I was like, oh, wow, this guy's really speaking of how he really feels about it. And I respect that. And then, unfortunately, when I was like, oh, should I use this in the show or not? I having to scroll down to the comments. And I only read the first one. And it made me sick to my stomach. Because it's full of uh, judgment. And uh, not um, this more balanced view that Father Mike seemed to espouse. So, I don't know. He seems to say... He's not sure if love is the death of duty for him. Now, he's not a watcher on the wall. He's um, 
a watcher of the kingdom of Roman Catholicism of God. But I don't know what my point is. My point is that it just interested me, and it seemed like a reasonable answer. And do I think that the guys on the wall should be having wives? No, because they're supposed to be keeping me safe if I'm uh, some sort of landed gentry in the north especially. But I'm not because I'm cruising around in my Roose Bolton fantasy fiction time machine, taking down suckers. So in that sense, you know, Jon Snow, well, he's Sam and Gilly. I'm all for it. Okay, I'll be honest. And things aren't going so hot up there, so, you know, why not enjoy a little kiss? I'm sure it helped Sam um, load more crossbows to get back to Gilly. So in that sense, maybe you do want people on the wall because the thing is, it's a very human thing. Like, you'd be like, oh, if you had your wife and kids a couple miles from the wall, you'd really defend it. But then you might start slacking. You're like, oh, I don't, I got to work a Saturday shift again. I'm going to call in sick. And then next thing you know, we're, we're toast. Not a lot of dudes with wives and kids are going to go down in the basement of the wall and battle with the giant on a quest they know is fruitless except to defend us against the giants. So I salute the men on the wall. I salute Father Mike for being honest about wishing being forlorn. He's got some kind of forlornness going for love, but he's, uh, you know, doing his best. I don't know anything about him. I don't, he may, I don't know if he's with us or not, but cheers to all involved. All right, let's have talk some Targaryens. Now, I wish we had more more time to talk Targaryens because, whoa, boy, they're an interesting family or I don't know what they are, lineage, a house. And I did not, I guess I had forgotten that the Meister there was a, a Targaryen. So I looked up, let's cover Amon. I think that's how you pronounce the name. Amon, born Amon Targaryen was the first son, third son of King Makar I one of King Makar I Targaryen. He served as Maester of the Night's Watch at Castle Black for so long. The rest of the Seven Kingdoms and this podcaster forgot about his Targaryen blood. He's played by Peter Vaughn. Hell of a job. An ancient man of a hundred years old at the beginning of the novel. And he's a wise man, that's what that says. He was the second of his name and the third son of Makar. He was named after his great-great-uncle, who we'll talk about, Prince Amon the Dragon Knight. And his grandfather, Dar... Diarn... Diron, the second. At the time, King Diarn had four grown sons, three with sons of their own. So he... So he felt that having too many potential Targaryen heirs was dangerous. He sent Amon to the Citadel, nine to ten years old. Amon forged his chain and earned the title Meister. Finishing his age studies at the age of 19, he served an unidentified lord until his father, King Makar, summoned him to court to serve the Iron Throne, not wanting to sit on the small council as he felt he would display the Grand Maester. Amon chose to serve at Dragonstone, the seat of his eldest brother, Prince Daron, till Daron died of the pox. 
After Darren's death, Meister became the Meister at the Citadel until he was summoned to court here the Great Council. There he was offered the crown but refused ceding rule to his brother Aegon V. He then chose to go to the Wall to take the vows of the Night's Watch for fear he might be using a plot to usurp his brother on the journey. He had an honor guard, Rhaegar Targaryen, sometimes corresponded with his great-great-uncle. We must have missed something there, but via messages, Amon claims that every man who joins the Watch has been tested on keeping his vows at least once. Amon states that he was tested three times, and the hardest was during the destruction of the House Targaryen during the War of the Usurper. So that was cool, but then I had to look up his uh, uncle, who's total fucking, who's total fucking badass. His name's also Aemon Targaryen. He's called the Dragon Knight. He was the second king of Viserys, two Targaryen, and a prominent member of the Kingsguard. He was knighted young, joined the Kingsguard at seventeen, served under four kings: Daeron, the Young Dragon, Baelor the Blessed. His father, Viserys II, and his brother, Aegon V, or Fourth, the Fourth. Prince Aemon was referred to as the noblest knight who ever lived. Skill with the sword was legendary throughout Westeros. He bore the Valerian steel sword, Dark Sister, previously wielded by Aegon, the Conqueror's sister wife. Visenia, and Aemon's grandfather, Prince Aemon Targaryen. I wonder where the Dark Sister is now. We could use it. Or is that the sword? I don't think that's the sword Jon Snow has, but I'm not positive. Probably not. Songs speak of his doomed love for his brother's queen, his own sister. So this is like, okay, this isn't so... If we got one sister wife, his grandfather, then his brother has a sister, Queen Nysmarius... According to the singers, Amon loved Nairus. Nairus loved him. He cried. There's a lot of broken hearts in Westeros, huh? Nairus married their brother, joined the King's Guard afterwards. After his brother became king, they ruled that Amon might be the uh, father of. Oh, this is familiar territory against son and heir, Daharon. It's caused several people to look at Aegon's. Call him Aegon's Blasters. Damon Blackfire, truth and rumors have never been proven or disproven. Amon once fought Craig and Stark, and he said he was never faced a finer swordsman. He was involved in the conquest of Dorne um, with his cousin and King Daron. He beat a Dornish champion. Then they lost Dorne. At one point, he was in a crow cage of a pit of vipers. And he's rescued by Baelor the Blessed. After Baelor and Viserys died, his brother came king. He was a Lord Commander of the King's Guard until his death. And um, defended his sister when she was accused of treason by Knight Sir Morgill. So wow, a lot of you know these people. These people they never learned these uh, West. Um, Whatever, these Westeros, some of these Westerosis. Aegon once won a tournament disguised as a mystery knight after his brother had forbidden him to take part because Aegon wanted to crown the mistress something or other. So that's cool. Targaryens are badasses. We'll talk some more Targaryens.
I'd like to start an interview podcast where I have Targaryens in. Maybe if I take out this um, Cat Stevens time machine, I get both of them. I could go fetch a Targaryen and bring them back here because I don't want to bring the podcast equipment into Westeros and, you know, run out of power or something. That wouldn't be a good idea. Or, God forbid, you know, someone gets their hands on podcasting equipment in in Westeros. That's not going to go, you know, oh, boy. Be like, hello, hello, this is, uh, you know, some, some goof that prays the gods old and new or something would be the one you'd be hearing from. All right, so, yeah, let's uh, move on to the next thing. So during this whole castle attack, or, well, yeah, Castle Black, during the whole attack on the wall in Castle Black, you know, maybe anybody that's listening that plays video games or ever has played a video game, I'm sure you got a little twitchy, you know, looking for your mouse or your uh, game pad or whatever you, however you prefer your games. And I noticed myself getting a little twitchy, but it was like an old school twitch. And I was like, man, I really feel like firing some barrels of flaming oil. And I started doing a little mouse click with my finger while I'm watching the episode. I'm like, what's going on? And I started remembering going back in time, way, 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 way back in time. And my friend Charlie, at some point, had gotten this computer, Apple IIGS. Now, I'm sure nowadays you might scoff at it or it wasn't that big, big a deal. It didn't sell well. But compared, I had like a a crappy PC that was like a CGA video card. And it had one of those eight speakers. I don't even think it, paid, it played 8-bits. I think it was like a one-voice one sound card, so it could only play like, you know, really, really bad sound. Not even good as 8-bit sound. But then my buddy Charlie's 2GS, it had like, you know, millions of graphical colors and high-end sound card at the time and there was this company called there was a, and there was this company called Cinemaware among other games some other games we played on that was World Games pretty cool game uh there might have been another like Winter Games or something I don't know if those were by maybe they were by EA I think they were by Borderbound or something I don't know but they had this there was this company Cinemaware and they made, and we also played a lot of uh, Space Quest. Anybody? Space Quest, anybody? Police Quest or uh, King's Quest? But they, so, but anyway, focus. Okay, I'm focusing. Cinemaware played these games. They had these, they had taken graphics to the next level, or they were trying to add a, like a cinematic element to the graphics of computer games. And they were chiefly doing this on the Amiga, the Commodore Amiga, which I think had the, top end of graphic and uh, sound cards, but this 2GS was a powerhouse. And so there was games like, uh, there was a mob game, I can't remember what it was called, but like Chicago something. There was a Three Stooges game, which was cool. There was a couple other ones, but then there was this game called Defender of the Crown. Uh, Let me look at my notes here. Defender of the Crown was a strategy computer game designed by Kellen Beck. It was Cinemaware's first game. It was released on the Amiga in 1986. And then it was ported. Uh, it's set in England in 1149 during the Middle Ages. 
where following the death of a king, different factions are fighting for territorial control. Sound familiar? Fighting screen. Uh, it's a player that can assume the role of a Saxon, Wilfred of Ivanhoe, Cedric of Rotherwood, Joffrey Longsword, or Wolfric the Wild. I like to be Wolfric the Wild, clearly. You gotta fight off Norman hordes, wrestle for control of England eventually. Player must fight for control of all territories. Potentially those controlled by other Saxons if they become antagonistic. Player must amass armies and fight for control of opponents. So there's like, it was this cool game because like, um, you can invade, it was like, uh, you can invade the castle, but you could also sit outside with catapult and knock the walls down. Now, this might just be my memory. I could have sworn you could throw some boiling oil in there. You could also throw a diseased cow in, I think. And then you try to deplete some, and then you'd invade it. Or you'd get the wall down enough and you could have invade it. And then you did some sword play at different levels. You could rescue damsels in distress. Uh, let's see what else it says. Uh, yeah, you can battle, loot, lay siege to opposing castles. You could joust. I forgot about that. Rescue damsels appear to help from Robin Hood. But it boils, it boils down to a war of attrition as it mass larger armies. Due to financial strains, the cinema had to release this game before it was ready to go out. Jim Sachs, the primary artist of the game. Uh, that's not important. It came out to mixed reviews. Some Amiga fanboys loved it. Some know-it-alls about gameplay didn't like it. They said the gameplay wasn't so great. They haven't seen one a young male who had always fantasized about um, decent graphics and breaking castle walls and sword play. Uh, compared to other video games of the time, Defender of the Crown established a new level of quality. Defender of the Crown had richer graphics than any computer console or arcade game could boast. It was a revelation. Randy McDonald was in charge of art direction, design, and production for Simware's first fur games. He explains in an interview that Peter Green and or I would do a sketch of what we wanted. Oh, and that's how I just talking about the covers. You know, Randy McDonald was the uh, cover artist, I think. And Ezra Tucker. It looks like Jim Sachs might have been the uh, graphic computer graphics artist. Jim Sachs is amazing, this quote says. These days everyone sees graphics like that. Because there are a lot of good computer graphic artists now, but back then, 20 years ago, it was astonishing to have someone that good. So cheers to Jim Sachs and Defender of the Crown. All right, the last thing we're going to cover tonight uh, is uh, bows and arrows because, you know, it really made me aware, you know, big battle of, like, what an awesome invention a bow and arrow is. I mean, not from a peace-loving standpoint, but from a male uh standpoint of loving battle scenes arrows are pretty cool the technology made me want to learn more about the technology i'm like you know i guess hunting they were good for back in the day and then when you're involved with the most dangerous game which is humans or you know battling other humans and there wasn't i mean sure this colonization and stuff but it's like quite a quite a I mean, if I was out in the woods and I'd been hit on the head so I couldn't remember anything, that there's no chance I would come up with a bow and arrow. I would be lucky to use 
you know, Cro-Magnon level tools. So I'm always impressed that people can, you know, ancient peoples came up with this. So let's talk a little bow and, bow and arrows, shall we? Okay, start with, uh, this is from uh, newarchaeology.com. History of bow and arrows. The history, the use of the bow and arrow goes back to the Paleolithic. There's evidence of bow and arrows between, in use between 8,000 and 9,000 B.C. in northern Germany. Schleswig, Holstein, Elm and yew, yew seem to be the favorite woods for bow making, while arrows were made of hazel. Arrowheads were made from flint and fastened to the arrow shaft with pine resin and snooze of nettle stems. Pine resin was heated with charcoal to produce flexible glue of great strength. Atzi, the Iceman found in the Alps, carried an unfinished bow of yew when he died in the Neolithic period. His bowstring was of flax, but we believe snow from Deer Lakes was also used. A major technological advance of the late Neolithic era was the use of sap wood on bow face to increase flexibility. This allowed bows to be produced to be pulled with far greater force without breaking. This allowed hunters much greater range and accuracy. The arrival of metalworking not only meant better metal arrowheads, but also metal blades, axes, draw scrapes, and so on for making bows. This means they can be made more accurately and quickly than ever before. And that's probably when they got in the hands of the conquering types. Bow and arrow didn't reach their greatest sights till 13th century Europe. Europe, Europe, I just said. Europe, when the British, they combined wear and Europe, wear up. British longbow allowed common soldiers to stand against and defeat fully armored noblemen. Uh, this is from Wikipedia. Projectile points are known from prehistory dating to the Middle Paleolithic. Bows were replaced spear throwers as a predominant means of launching sharp projectiles on all continents except Australia. Archery was an important military and hunting skill before the use of firearms. Stone points, could, which may have made arrowheads. Stone points, which may have been arrowheads or spear points, were made in Africa about 64,000 years ago. The bow seems to be invented by the late Paleolithic or early Mesolithic. The oldest indication of archery comes in Stelsmoor in a valley north of Hamburg, Germany, which we just covered. The oldest definite bows so far come from the Home Guard Swamp in Denmark. In the 1940s, two bows were found there that dated to about 8,000 BP. Archery seems to have arrived in the Americas via Alaska around 6,000 BCE. And you really gotta be careful when you read these because you gotta, you know, I need the metric system, the dates in Wikipedia. With Arctic small tool tradition about 2,500 BCE, spreading south into temperate zones by 2,000 BCE. Oldest Neolithic bows in Europe are found in anaerobic layers dating between 7,400 and 7,200 BP. I don't know the difference. I'm be honest, people. I don't know the difference between BP and BCE. Probably two different people doing this. 
chariot-borne archers became a defining feature during the Bronze Age warfare from Europe to Eastern Asia and India. However, in the Middle Bronze Age, with the development of massed infantry tactics, the use of chariots for shock tactics or as prestigious command vehicles, archery seems to have lessened in importance in European warfare. The ancient Egyptian people took to archery as early as 5,000 years ago. The Syrians and Babylonians extensively used bow and arrow. Old Testament has multiple references to archery as a skill identified with the ancient Hebrews. Chariot warriors. People of Crete practice archery. Apollo and Artemis. Oh, that's just a picture. Greek god Apollo is a god of archery, also of the plague and the sun. Metaphorically perceived as shooting invisible arrows, Artemis is the goddess of hunting. Heracles and Odysseus and other mythological figures are often depicted with a bow. During the invasion of India, Alexander the Great personally took command of shield-bearing guards, foot companions, and archers. Early Romans had very few archers as their empire grew. They recruited auxiliary archers from other nations. Julius Caesar armies in Gaul included Cretan archers. Blah, blah, blah. For millennia, archery has played a pivotal role in Chinese history. Particularly, archery featured prominently in ancient Chinese culture and philosophy. Archer was one of the six noble arts of the Zhu dynasty, 1146 to 256 BCE. Archery skill was a virtue for Chinese emperors. Confucius himself was an archery teacher. And Lei Zizai, a Taoist philosopher and avid archer, bow and arrow constituted the classical Indian weapon of warfare from the Vedic period until the event, advent of Islam. Detailed accounts of training methodologies in early Indian India can concern archery to be an essential martial skill in India. Skilled archers were prized in Europe throughout the Middle Ages. The advantage of firearms rendered bows obsolete in warfare. Ireland had some archers. I guess we could kind of go on. We could go on in this bows and arrows forever, but it's just cool that, uh, you know, some of our forebears, you know, we wouldn't be here. In some sense, that's a positive. Well, maybe not so positive, the bow and arrow. It's fairly positive that it allowed, uh, I don't, you know, what? I'd love to hear from, if anyone listens again, that is like listening awake still and, you know, like studying some sort of, I, think, I don't know if this is anthropology or archaeology or what, but it's like how much of invention is related to, um, what do you call that, Darwinism? What's that called? It's related to evolution, you know, like would we have evolved, would humans even be alive today if we didn't invent some of these tools? You know, we evolved to use tools, and then at some point somebody came up with this bow and arrow idea. wasn't one of my four direct relatives, but somehow I share some parts of my DNA with that. So I'm proud of that person. Not always used for good, but what are you going to do, you know? So that's archery. 
are bows and arrows. Uh, yeah. All right, well, it's just time for me to say my prayers. Um, good evening, uh, Crone. Smith, Miller, Barky, and uh, Jester. I think I don't think I'm forgetting anybody. I hope I'm not. A uh, couple updates. So you know, last week I was talking to all those other gods. I hope you guys, you know, it's been a week, and I don't know if you got any of that stuff done. I asked you about, but. Uh, You know, I didn't wasn't doing a lot of praying for myself, so I hope that, you know that. But I also, you know, I don't know if you took guys. I don't think you guys took it the wrong way. Okay, I'm just beating around the bush, okay? And you guys already know, because you're gods, that there's no goats. And I was thinking about this whole goat mission because, to be honest, I think I, I, I lost a goat on purpose, okay? Yeah, because I'm one, I'm scared of dragons. That's the sh- that's the truth. I might as well come clean with you gods. Hopefully, the maiden's not listening to any of this because I'm not addressing her. And I know, Jester Oberyn, you're having a crack up at this one. It, is that uh, it's kind of like the whole goat thing was hard. I was a little bit scared of the goats because you. Know, this is going to sound dumb, but I couldn't get a lot of sleep around them because I was afraid they'd chew my ears off while I was asleep because they eat everything. And I was trying to sleep with cover my ears, but then I couldn't. And then I'd see wake up and there'd be a goat standing near me. And I feel like they were looking at my ears because they would be like chopping, you know, whatever they do. And... You know, I know it's just in their nature, whatever, to eat everything. So it's one thing they did. There was times that you probably know they ate some of my hair on my head. And one one did eat my chest hair. There was time I was eating without a shirt on. So it was common sense to think that I'd try to eat my ears. So that's another reason I I was, like, trying to sleep further away from them. But it's really because I'm afraid of the dragons. So you got to be like, okay, well, let's catch what are you praying for now? What do you want? You coming back to those boots? No, I'm not going back to those boots. I'm still your top um, person, crone. You're the, you're the best. Don't let anybody take that away from you. And I'm here promoting you. And I'm trying to have a positive attitude with people. I'm like, oh, you know, may the crone be with you. Oh, if you, maybe I'm becoming more of a, yeah, I guess I'm, the last day or two I've been trying to talk about you guys and it's kind of been weirding people out. Like, are you, are you familiar with the uh, Smith and the Miller? Do you practice the uh, old gods or the new? Because I do both and then people usually, you know, take off. But I thought that maybe it was because I stink. So here's what I'm thinking. Now, it's going to sound crazy because, you know, I'm afraid of the dragon, but that thing breathes fire. And again, maybe there is a part of me that has a heart. I don't want the goat, like I was like afraid the goats would get hurt. They did not seem like the the drills I did try to roam with them. They did not seem like they were going to pick anything up to learn. 
like the ideas I had for bringing them into battle and getting them in the Khaleesi's army, fighting dragons and breaking chains, wasn't going to work. I mean, just be honest, clear, straight with you. But this one I'm thinking is uh, we, uh, I know there was a lot of stuff about with the drowned god last week and taking some vengeance on the Boltons and the, uh, the Clegane, Mr. Clegane. So I don't want you guys to worry about that because I'm going to keep that on hold, like going for vengeance until I'm done. So I've been thinking to myself, like, what is the best way to bring glory, the almighty glory that the Crone, Miller, Smith, uh, Barky, Tree God, and uh, the newest guy, the Jester, you know, what's the best way to guys bring you guys all glory? I hope I'm not forgetting somebody. I know Miller, I kind of forgot you last week. I apologize again. Without, you know, if we can't stop a dragon and then work for the Khaleesi. Plus, I was like, man, we're not, I was kind of, wasn't being realistic. Because I was like, how am I going to get all these goats against the narrow sea? Especially considering I don't even know where the narrow sea is. I'm not good with directions. I forgot to mention that in my initial first prayer to you all. Um, but yeah, so I've been on it, though, trying to brainstorm of like, you know, how can I, you know, what, what are we going to do to make people, you know, say, well, you got the, uh, father, mother, warrior, those gods, yeah, they're, eh. but that crone, oh, I love the crone. She's the goddess of all the gods. And then my second favorite, or just as equally favorite is that Miller and that Smith. And Bar- I mean, Barky, you kind of set because, um, well, maybe you're not set because you, well, Barky, I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass you. This is not a, this is not, this is constructive criticism. And I think I brought this up before. Like, can you, we need to get you some happier faces. A lot of, a lot of studies out there about smiling. And I think if we could work on, um, Getting your faces more smiley, the tree faces you have, that'd be going a long way because people already like trees to begin with. So, like Barky, look at like like how nice it would be if you're sleeping under a tree and then you wake up and the tree's smiling at you. Maybe you you know. So if you could talk to the trees about that, and whoever's carving those faces. Um. Oh, I, that's what I'll do. Well, no, I don't know if I should be carving faces on trees because. I don't want to be the one that they get met. You know, I know the children of the forest were on that and then the handles or somebody. But that's something. So that's Barky. That's one thing. But just, like, have your people at your next meeting bring that up. and Or, you know, smote somebody that's frowning, and that'll teach them. Okay, Jester, um, I'm almost afraid to talk to you because I can just see you sitting back there writing your poetry thinking about your polyamorous lifestyle, and maybe you're getting some of that in your, uh, but you always had this kind of smirky grin on your face, Oberon. And so I just want to, you know, get get on the same page. I'm fine with being the butt of your jokes. Um, As long as we're like, as long as it's not you're bullying me, okay? If you're bullying me, you've heard what I'm capable of. And I'm not, I don't give gods idle threats because I know you're gods and I'm just a man. But I'll, you know, I'll get up there 
and I've got a, you know, Bruce Bolton fantasy fiction time machine powered by Flay Men and the Ruling of Bruce Bolton. So I'll come up there over it, and I'll put the, uh, you know, I'll take your jester hat and I'll do some stuff to it and, and you in it. And I know you're like the viper. But I got a couple, um, you know, I don't know. And hopefully your head is re back to normal because I know you're a handsome man. I'm comfortable saying that you're a handsome man. It's not bothersome to me. Um, I mean, I'm jealous of you, to be honest. And again, I just want to make sure you're, you know, I'm not interested in the maiden, so don't get go after her because I'm interested in her. But I think it'd be funny for you to make fun of me when I'm with the maiden. You know, you could crack jokes, but I just don't want to be bullied. And you're not the bullying type, I know. So you can laugh at me, you know, you can like dump some thunder on my wagon or, I mean, you can have a go bite my ear, but just don't draw blood, nip my ear. But yeah, so that's it. But, you know, I don't know if you even need any glory because you're like glorious to begin with. But if you could, you know, maybe you could help me out with the planning for these other gods. I know they're probably listening in. But, I mean, now that the goats are gone and, well, they've been gone a couple weeks, but, you know, I don't really have much to do. And I don't have any good ideas about what to bring the glory of the gods deservedly you need. Uh, Yeah, and there's, like, people are so spread out. I was thinking, um, well... I, I was thinking we could have a festival, but I'm not good at planning festivals. So, you don't know what to do, God. So, I guess I'm just praying to you for guidance, Crone. You're supposed to know my fate. How about filling me in on what's next? Sweet Crone, I just want to do right. And, I mean, not that and do you in that way, but if that's what I need to do, I'll be willing, uh, you know. But, yeah, Crone, I'm here for you. Guide my eyes and my heart and my mind. Uh, Smith, um, you know, forge me, forge my, uh, you know, personality and stuff in a fire of steel and alloys. Miller, grind me up, grind my past up and, you know, bake me in a cake as fast as you can. And, you know, I'll chase down that gingerbread man, roll me and pat me, mark me with a thing, you know, as we said before, and I'll be there to serve you. Just let me know if there's any bread. I mean, if there's some bread-related problems, uh, I could get on that as long as it doesn't. I'm not good at gardening or harvesting stuff, so prefer. I don't. It's not the work I mind. It's just the that work, that kind of work. So don't count me out on that. But anything else, you know, let me know. Yeah, if there's any. And Smith, I don't like hot stuff because I don't pay good enough attention. I always end up getting burned. By accident, I, you know, walk into the hot thing or, you know, turn and then my hand's still hanging. So count me on them. But if there's like a, you know, there's somebody uh, degrading with your smith, smithitude. I know the warrior. Again, that's what I'm here for is like sick you being degraded, you know. So that's that. Barky, we covered it. Smile more. Um... If there's any tree, other tree-born problems, I'm here. I'm I'm ready to roll, people. The only thing I'm doing is, you know, practicing my moves on the maiden, which you've probably been watching, Jester. I know you've been watching me, saying, 
So again, if you see the maiden, tell her I didn't tell her I said what's up, but the you know I'm busy. And Crone, you know, tell her I'm in love with the Crone. Crone, don't worry about it. It's just a you know cover story. But that's it. You know, I'm your loyal servant here, and I'd like to do some serving within reason. Um, again, I haven't heard from the fake hound, which is nice. So I should show some gratitude. I'm gratuitous for that. Full of gratitude. Full of gratitude for, um, well, I haven't eaten in a day and a half. But uh, I'm not worried about it again. And again, like, I got these sandals I made myself. They give me a lot of blisters. So, again, you know, if you find a refurbished pair of green boots with a gold trim or the inlet, whatever you call it, the decorative gold stuff, and then the fur that's removable, um in case I got to do some ranging into the north. I thought, you know, those boots would be handy. Horse would be cool. No goats eating my ears. Uh, that's it. I'm just serving. I'm, I'll be here. I'm on hold for you people, you lords and gods, goddesses. Um, that's it. I'm going to be here. And I'll just be, again, like doing some, um, I heard somebody say mind mapping. I'm not sure what that means. It was someone selling mind mapping scrolls, um, and I said, "Why are you?" So, I said, "Tell me more." And he said, "Oh, well, this will help you, uh, you know, help you solve all your problems and become a rich person and successful, and uh, all this stuff." And I said, "Really, those scrolls, the mind mapping scrolls, will help you super." I'm like, "Then why the hell are you driving, walking around from town to town, selling scrolls?" Uh, maybe that. Oh yeah, this is it. And then I. I, me and him yelled at each other, how about that? How about I get righteous for you gods? I know I can I can catch up with that guy because he was a little bit gimpy. And then he said, you know, I, I need to mind map my attitude. And I said, I'll mind map your face. And then he told, you know, he pulled out the goat card. He said, you smell and look like a goat, which hurt me. And I said, I'm not going to waste my time with you. But a couple of people were chiming in. They're like, yeah, why are you selling scrolls, teaching people how to mind map to make money instead of just making money yourself? So maybe how about I'm righteous and I can invoke you guys. And I know righteousness, you know, I'm not a total fool here praying to you all. Obviously, I picked you guys. I didn't just go with the glory gods or... You know, I'm just not, I'm going to reeve eventually, but I got a time machine for that. But what if I do some righteous, um, vengeful acts or, you know, just shaming, uh, you know, in your guys' names? I could do it with a jester, like one day I'll do a jester flare. Another time I'll beat someone with bread. Another time I'll, um, I don't want to, you know, do anything with, like, burning metal because I would have to handle that but you know I could just hit him with a piece of metal or something I could find and then crone I could hit him with a cane or just give him you know crone I'll just give him a good talking to in your honor you know another thing these scrolls so I'm going to get that scroll guy if you guys don't want me to do that let me know but otherwise I'm on the path of righteousness for you guys so that's it I, now we have that's why I pray to you guys because I have a different direction now. When I when I decided to pray to you, I didn't. I still don't have those boots, but 
not a thing, not important. Uh, I mean, that guy's selling scrolls. He didn't even have any boots. He was barefoot. A stomp on his feet. So what I'm going to do. So yeah, I'm on the path of righteousness. I'll be him. You know, I'll, I'll choose my battles wisely. I'll make sure it's people that are real dirts. And, you know, I'll just decide who's dirtbags and who's not. But uh, I'm sure I've got good judgment on that. My judgment's sound, right? So that's it. Um, no barky. Yeah, I can be righteous. If if I see anyone touch a tree, I'm a poof, man. But, yeah, maybe I'll switch them for barky. barky. That's it, God's crone. Thank you. Uh, all, all glory and wisdom your way. Smith. You know, Iron Strong, Smith, Miller, hardiness of, uh, fullness of nutrition, Jester, no, I'm going to be foolhardy in my righteousness and your honor, Barky, uh, you know, guide me with some connection to this earth that sustains us. You know, God, that's me checking out. I'll be around, but I'm your, as always, your humble servant. Good day.